So I was thinking about Joshua and that, that, that story. It, it kind of reminded me of, of spiritual warfare because who are we? I mean, they faced giants in the land. They faced especially big people. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against mortal humanity, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies or in the spiritual realm. I remember when we were in Africa that um, one of the things that people feared, they were afraid of, was, was a... Um, they were afraid of a, of a uh, spiritual realm. They were afraid of spirit beings, particularly in that part of Africa, their ancestors' spirit. Now, you think they'd be family. They could all get along, right, if they were the, really their ancestors' spirits. But first of all, they're afraid of their ancestors' spirits because these are spirit beings. And secondly, truth be told, these are not the spirits of their ancestors. They are demons who are pretending to be the spirits of their ancestors in order that they might terrorize them and control them through fear. But, but, I mean, we're just humans and these are spirits. How is it that we could possibly stand against them? What, what, what hope do we have? And God gives the answer to that. It's not about you, he says. It's about me. Be afraid not because I am with you. And that's what Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 3 as well. That he calls us into engaging in this battle. He's moving in that, in, toward that direction of spiritual warfare. It's going to come very clear once we get to chapter 6. That's the passage many are familiar with, putting on the whole armor of God. And yet he's laying a very important foundation in chapters 1 and chapter 2 before we ever get there. How could I stand in this battle? Because I'm not, I don't stand in myself, I stand in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1. And well, who am I to think I could stand? Maybe other Christians can, but these voices, the enemy would attack us, would whisper into our heads the things that we have done, the things that ought to disqualify us from engaging in the battle. And yet, we're reminded in chapter 2 that we stand on the ground of grace, that we are fully forgiven. The enemy might bring accusing thoughts into your own mind and head, of all that may drag up all the things that he, you have done. And yet you can say all of that is forgiven in Jesus Christ. That I don't stand before God on the basis of how good I am. I stand before God on what Jesus has done for me. I am saved by grace and in fact, I, I, I serve him by grace. I'm God's workmanship. God is forming me. God is transforming me. He is doing his work in me so that he might do his work through me out into this world, as Pastor Ryan was describing earlier, so that I don't need to be afraid. I can be afraid not because God is with me. And that's, that's my basis of acceptance. God is for me. And that's also the basis of my forgiveness. God has done that for me. And he shapes me. He shapes me for service. So I serve in his power. So as we come to Ephesians chapter 3, I want to give you an overview of where we're going in this chapter first of all. Because I want you to see the big picture, and then, and then I want us to then unpack that. But, but before we do, imagine going back to that Joshua. I forgot I wanted to do this. That's why I'm backtracking very quickly now. The environment that Paul's writing to in Ephesus, it's in some ways not like ours because it's a long time ago in a place far, far away. In other ways, there are some real similarities. Ephesus, for a Christian, was a scary place. Ephesus was the center. It was like a capital of that part of the world. In the Roman Empire, it was recognized as the lead, one of the most important cities on that end of the empire. 
In all of Asia Minor, Ephesus was the place. And Ephesus, in the center of it, had this huge pagan temple. And it had a long and steeped history and, and spiritual activity and darkness and idolatry and sorcery that were all attached to this temple. Not only that, but this temple was the controlling of, all, of the whole e economic system in the, in the greater region. So they not only had spiritual power and fear over people, but they also controlled the economics. They controlled who worked and who didn't. They controlled who made money and who didn't, who was rich and who was poor. This temple, the temple of Artemis, which was the center of Ephesus, was, a, was, a, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've heard about the pyramids and the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, and I'm not going to try to name them all. One of them was this temple of Artemis. It was fantastic. It was, just to give you a size, of, of some, some sense of the scope of it, in that day, the, 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 the Parthenon, the Greek Parthenon in Athens, standing on the Acropolis, was a quarter the size of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. It was huge for its time. It was fantastic. It was about 400 feet by 270 feet or something like that. It was huge. And, and they, they imagined that the center of the temple was this stone, this founding stone that they said fell directly from Diana Artemis out of heaven and landed there in the midst of that swampy area. And so they built it up, and they built one temple after another, each one bigger and grander until this one is put in place. And it's to that city, with all of the sorcery that surrounded it, that Paul comes in Acts chapter 19. And it's, it's almost like there's a mini Pentecost there, both in terms of the obvious outpouring of the Spirit upon about 12 men, Acts 19 says. And there are the casting out of spirits. There, 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 there's the healing of people who are sick. There's all kinds of, 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 of miraculous signs being done. And there are many people believing, just as occurred in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. There are many people believing. And, and when they are believing, one of the things they're doing, I don't know if this happened with you, but when they, when they believed in Jesus, their life was changed, and one of the things they got rid of was their sorcery books, their witchcraft books, their, their books of spells and incantations. Maybe you went through your closet and you pulled out the Ouija board. Maybe you pulled out your tarot cards. Uh, you, maybe you didn't have any of those. Maybe you pulled out some books about psychic phenomena. And you'd gather all these things together along with the people in Ephesus. And they brought them down to the center of the city and they lit them on fire, the original book burning. And yet these books of magic and sorcery, these, weren't just, these were not magic tricks. These were books of sorcery. And the, and the worth of them, it was said, they were worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. I don't know exactly how much because I'm not sure which pieces of silver we're talking about there. But it was enough that Luke thought it was worth mentioning in the book. That this was a huge amount of money. There was a huge pile of these very valuable books of sorcery spells and incantations. And the same kind of things, maybe different sorts of things, that people who are involved in all kinds of other sorcery or idolatry or things associated with the spiritual realm apart from Jesus would use even in our culture. I say all of that just to you get the sense that Ephesus was not just another big city where people didn't know Jesus. Ephesus was a dark place. Ephesus was spiritually dark and spiritually active and real in the ways that some of the, what you'd imagine the spiritually darkest parts of some of the large cities around us are. 
a place that you would consider a, a stronghold that it's going to be very difficult for the gospel to penetrate there. That was Ephesus. And yet the gospel did penetrate there. And that's actually what God is doing with this unlikely apostle named Paul in Ephesus is what Paul says God is still doing today and he's using you and I. That's Ephesians chapter 3. That we're in the midst of something that's much bigger than ourselves. Facing enemies which are, who are stronger than ourselves, but doing so in the power of a God who is greater than all. And who has been working and has been victorious and will give us that same victory. Our job then is to stand in it. The overall, the overall thrust of Ephesians well, I, I'll show you this. I'm still stuck on the temple picture, so I need to show you one more. You want to know what happened to the temple of Artemis? As big and grand and huge as it is, you could go see it today. There it is. No, not the building back there. Not that fort up on the hillside or the other older ruins over there. No, all that's left of the temple of Artemis, as huge and fantastic as it was, is that one pillar you see off to the right-hand side. That's all that's left. And truth be told, that pillar wasn't standing either. They had to take several pieces and, and stand them up on top of each other to make one whole pillar again, just so when the tourists came, they would know where the temple once stood. It is gone, and there's nothing left but a swamp. Oh, and mosquitoes. Bring your deed. But the gospel of Christ continues. The church of Jesus Christ continues to advance into the spiritually darkest places. And that's Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 3. Okay, here we go. In three parts, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 is about salvation in Christ for all nations. It's salvation in Christ for all nations so that we can make God's righteous reconciliation and rule made known in the darkest of places. There is nobody that the gospel is not for. There is no place that God's gospel cannot and should not go. How does that happen? By God empowering us to love like Jesus. So as we love like Jesus, we will more fully know Jesus' love for us. And as that grabs hold of us, we will all the more show God's likeness to the people around us. Basically, what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3 is this. Every choice that is before us, and he's going to flesh this out in the next couple of chapters, 4 and 5, but every choice is an opportunity for us to declare God's glory, not only to earth, but also in heaven, to those who are believing the devil's lie. That's what we're looking for. That's what I want you to be looking for as we now jump into Ephesians chapter 3. First, I'm going, to, I'm going to look at um, the first six verses. Look how far the gospel reaches. Look how far the gospel has gone. And this is, there's a point here that, that seems a little just, well, sure, for us. We assume this. We, we've known this because we're in the middle of it. The gospel has always been for everybody as far as we know. And yet, how far does that go? But it used to be, or imagine if you were in the first century, when the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the promised king of Israel has come and he died. Well, that fulfills Isaiah 53. That sounds good for Israelites who will believe. And yet, all of a sudden, the, the savior of Israel has become the savior of all nations. And that's something bigger 
than was expected. You say, okay, well, that's good for us. It's bad for somebody else. Let's imagine for a moment that you're part of that angelic rebellion. You're one of Satan's minions. And Israel's a problem over here. And you do what you can against them. You do what you can to frustrate them, to entangle them, to tempt them and distract them and, and cause difficulty for Israel because Israel is the, is the center of God's plan. It's Israel whom God is, is making himself known to the world through. And Israel has the light of the knowledge of God, the Old Testament scriptures. Israel's a problem. But the rest of the world is yours. In fact, in the book of Daniel, it refers to specific demonic powers, the prince of, the, the prince of Greek, Greece and the prince of Persia, that an angel has to, has to, has to, has to fight against as, as, as they're coming to Daniel to, to minister to him. So there are these powers over the, all the other nations. Israel has the light, and the rest of them don't. So Israel's a problem for you as a demonic minion, if you were, but the rest of the world is yours, Right? But that has now changed. Darkness or light has invaded your darkness. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 3, rather, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I'm assuming that you've heard that. Well, we have because we've been reading the last two chapters. That's what he's talking about. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, chapter 1 and 2. When you read this, you can perceive, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What does all this talk about a mystery? It's not a whodunit. It's not a novel you would buy. What is this talk? He's getting to it. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. So a mystery in the New Testament is this. A mystery is something that's known to God. It's not new to God. It's not something God just made up. But it's something that he has withheld. He's kept back. It's something that God has not yet revealed. And it's something that you would not know you would not have understood this from the Old Testament until God reveals it, unfolds it, explains it, makes it known. So a mystery is something we would never conclude on our own. It's bigger than that, and God himself reveals it when he chooses to. What is that mystery that God held back, hadn't let out? Angels nor humans knew this until now. It's this, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. That everybody's in. Everybody's included. There is nobody who's beyond the reach of the gospel. That's the mystery. You say, ah, I knew that. Of course you did. You were here last week. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. But Paul says this is important. Because this is, I said that this was not just new to humans. This was new to the angelic realm as well. This was new to those demonic minions who Israel was a problem for, but Israel's actually pretty helpless. They're not that big of a problem. And the rest of the world is ours, they said. Not any longer. 
And that's what Paul steps into in Ephesus. Paul steps into the greatest stronghold of, those, of that demonic opposition, right into Ephesus itself. And there, as, ever, as elsewhere, he turns the world upside down. Not Paul, but by the gospel. Now, this, this stewardship, this mystery, this responsibility is given to Paul. Does that ever strike you as curious? Well, you know about Paul. Well, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew the book well. Paul knew the Old Testament inside and out. Paul knew the Jewish traditions. Paul knew how to argue with Jewish people, which I guess if you're going to evangelize in Jerusalem can be a useful skill. So it seems like Paul would be ideal to be the one to especially witness to Israel and to Jewish people, right? He's got the background for it. He knows the ins and the outs. He knows how to talk to these people. He's one of these people. Now, Peter, on the other hand, Peter was a fisherman, okay, not the greatest school, school of hard knocks rather than um, the, the pharisaical, pharisaic, pharisaic rabbinical schools, and Peter's from Galilee. Peter's from way out there. Where can anything good come from, Galilee, that place? Peter's up there in Galilee, but or Galilee, Galilee was a cosmopolitan place. Galilee was a crossroad of the nations. Galilee, the northern end of Galilee, was on that trade route coming as far away as Damascus and further east, even from old Babylon. Anything that moved out to the Great Sea, the Sea of Mediterranean, would come through northern Galilee. And so there were all kinds of the nations. I mean, it was a highway for the nations right through Galilee. That's why there were those Roman tax posts there that Matthew was a part of. And so Peter would have known Gentiles. Peter knew people from the nations. Peter would have been comfortable interacting with people from all kinds of different countries. Peter would have been great to be God's apostle to the nations. We're going to say, and if I was in charge of this, if I was looking at candidates and looking at ministry opportunities, I would say, okay, Paul, you're going to Israel. You're going to be the focus of evangelism to Israel. And Peter, you're going to the nations. You have got the background. You are ready. Off we go. And that is exactly not what God did. God takes Peter and makes him the apostle to Israel. And you see that stepped into in Acts chapter 2 beautifully. Paul, on the other hand, Paul already knows all about Israel. Paul is going to be the apostle to the nations. Isn't that interesting? Paul is given that stewardship by God. You see, it's not about what I'm capable of. It's not about what I'm ready for. It's not about what I have the skills for. It's rather, Lord, what would you do? You see, grace teaches us to ask in terms of service if we not only are saved by grace, but if we live by grace, if we are his workmanship for his works which he has planned for us, then grace teaches me to ask not what do I think I can do, which we often approach ministry in serving that way. Could I do that? Probably not. That is not at all the reason not to do it. Grace teaches us not to ask what do I think I can do, but Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And if God wants me to do it, God will give me the ability. God will give me the enabling. God will give me the help, his power, his grace to be able to do it. So I couldn't do that. I've never done that. I don't have the ability to do that. That is not your reason to not be at vacation Bible camp. Boy, I just jumped right out of that, didn't I? You didn't see that? No, some of you did see that coming. But I mentioned that because of all kinds of things that I'm not the one for. No, that's not my gift. 
Well, sometimes you need to put your gifts aside. I was telling somebody in between the services, I have the gift of criticism. If you need critiquing, call me. I'll be there. I could do that. It's not one you read in the Bible a lot about, but you hear a lot about the gift of criticism in the church. I, I, I can do that. But sometimes I have to put my abilities and my, my, my greatest strengths aside and say, God, what would you have me to do? Paul is given a stewardship from God that he's supposed to step into. And Paul does that. Paul takes the gospel to the nations, and wow. Wow. In fact, it has grown that the nations, the gospel, and the knowledge of Jesus is greater among the nations than it is among Israel. God has turned that thing on its head too. And imagine what the enemy thought was their solid ground. They're locked in and they're just working at Israel. Now the gospel has so invaded the enemy terrain that even people in Oregon believe. It's amazing. How did this happen? To the ends of the earth, God said. And as you've heard me say before, that's Oregon or the Oregon coast. Okay, so you may think you're too far or where you are is too far gone. Do you ever feel like that? That the place where you're around or the people that you're with, those that you work with or people in your neighborhood or somebody you keep bumping into and you feel like, well, I'm supposed to witness to them, but man, God, there is no chance that this person is ever going to be interested in Jesus or salvation in him. They are just too far away. They are too far gone. Don't think where you are is too far, too difficult to witness. Remember, they laughed at Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 2 before 3,000 were saved. Remember, Paul was directed by God to Macedonia and, is, and he's greeted by a beating and a prison cell in, 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 in Philippi. At the end of it is a wonderful church planted that sent him many other places on his ministries from there. He, is, he, uh, he receives the same kind of treatment of Thessalonica. Uh, he's, he's laughed. This whole gospel of the resurrected Jesus has laughed off the hill in Athens and yet one of the leaders one of the leaders of the group becomes a believer in Jesus. Don't think where you are is too far. It's too difficult to witness. You'd be amazed at what God will do. Look how far the gospel reaches. Everywhere the enemy said it couldn't go, that's exactly where it is. So wherever you are, where God would have you go, who, who God has put you with, who God has put you near, who God has you neighbors with or friends with or an association or you keep bumping into them. It's like, I wish I could get away from this guy. Maybe not. Maybe you're the one and they're the one and there's a d divine appointment. Look how far the gospel reaches. You see, you and I, now you think how far it reaches. We're thinking, first of all, in terms of how far into the darkness in terms of people who don't know the Lord, who do not believe in God. What about farther than that? What about even beyond this earth, that God would use you and I to show God's glory in heaven as well as on earth? That today, in the midst of today, the things that I do, the choices I make today would be used by God in heaven and on earth as a demonstration of his glory and power. Is that possible? Is that true? Look at the next section, verse 7. Of this gospel, Paul says, this reaches to everybody gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It's by God's grace, not me, which was given me by the working of his power. 
To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, as grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. So God has this mystery. He said, Paul, here it is. Spread the word. And that's what Paul's been doing. And that's what we do. To what end? To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, be now, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you get that? You thought you were just witnessing to a neighbor down the street. You thought you were just showing God's glory to people that you work with. You, it, it, it goes much farther than that. When I say look how far the gospel goes, it goes all the way to heaven. That you and I have the privilege of, as Christ's church, you and I have the privilege of showing God's glory on earth and in heaven. According to his eternal purpose, which he has realized in Christ Jesus, that we have boldness and, and access with confidence through faith in him. So don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you is for your glory. Even the difficulties in the midst of that, the gospel is spreading. And, God says, and Paul says this is bigger than you realize. He says it's being demonstrated to principalities and powers. Now those are the same words. Those authorities that he talks about here, those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places or the spiritual realms, I used to think about that in terms of angels. Angels gathered around the throne. You know, the faithful ones, the loyal ones, those still serving God, honoring him, falling down before him in worship. I thought of those angels and I said, wow, we as Christians who experience God's forgiveness, who experience God's redemption, we are able to show them something of God's forgiveness and God's mercy and his power to transform our lives. We show and demonstrate something to these angels in heaven by the way that we live faithfully in Christ. And that's good. But this is even better. When you put this authorities and rulers into the context of the book of Ephesians, the authorities and rulers he's talking about are not those who are faithful, those angelic beings, those sent ones by God. That's what the word angel means. But these are the other rulers and principalities, rulers and authorities that he talks about in chapter 6, the spiritual wickedness in the spiritual realm. So to be consistent all the way through Ephesians on who's being talked about there, you and I are demonstrating God's glory to a demonic opposition. That's a little different. Who am I? Who do we think we are? They're giants and we're just average sized or maybe we're little, right? And yet God would use us. Paul's ministry of God's delivering grace is proclaimed to nations beyond Israel so that he takes the gospel into enemy domain mentioned that. It's by God's power that God is transformingly using us, that he transforms us. He changes us and he works through people like Paul the least. I am the least of all saints, Paul says, to portray his glorious deliverance. Now if God uses Paul the least to show his glory, God will use you and I. Do not think that a place is too hard or that I am too weak. I don't have the answers. I don't know what to say. We have too great a God. So it's not about us. It's about God who says, I'm using you. I will empower you.
our obedience then, like Paul's, simply shows our loving, trusting submission to God, especially when obedience costs us something. And that directly contradicts the fall in the garden. When Adam and Eve followed Satan's lie because they thought that would gain them something. And we instead, we will follow our, our God and Savior even if it costs us something. Where you go, I'll go. I'll do what you would have me to do. I'll say what you would have me to say even though somebody might ridicule me like they have others before. That's okay even if it costs me something because there I'll taste something of what Jesus did even though it cost him so much more. I'll end up showing something of Christ. I'll end up experiencing something of Christ, especially when it costs me something. And this will happen. Let's peek ahead in Ephesians a little bit now. This will happen in every day. Something's loose here. This will happen in everyday occurrences, in everyday life. If you read now on this background, if you read chapters 4 and chapters 5, you'll see all kinds of practical instructions about how do we live as Christians in the midst of the world every day. And it plays out in, in things like telling the truth. It plays out in giving instead of taking. Of words of grace that are not, too, not harsh or demeaning. You know, when you've been treated wrong by somebody, somebody, or you go to a place and you're the customer, you're to be served, and they were actually kind of rude. And boy, you, might, you just might let them have it. You might let them have a piece of your mind. Hold, keep it. Keep that piece of your mind. You need all you got. Trust me, you can't spare it. Hang on to it. Hold those words back because our words are supposed to be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, that we might lift up and encourage others. Paul says somewhere else, bless those who persecute you. Bless them, don't curse them. Rather than immorality or crudeness, we show God's purity, God's rightness, God's holiness. Even in marriage and with our kids, those last two sections of Ephesians 5 and into chapter 6, where he gives instructions about for husbands and, husbands and wives submitting to one another and, and, and parents giving themselves to and for their children, that we give ourselves away for the sake of others in those very real day-to-day -day events, these are your Job moments. What do I mean by that? Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Job. It's... In the first couple of chapters, the curtain's pulled back and we see what's going on in heaven, how that Satan is bringing accusations against God and Job, that he only serves you because basically, God, you have bought him off. You see the lie, it's a double lie. It's a lie against God who's manipulating people for their favor. And it's a lie against humans who would believe God and follow him, that they're only doing it for the good stuff God gives them. So the enemy is accusing both humanity and God. And the lie of it is shown. When Job remains faithful, when there's no earthly reason for him to be, except that God is his Savior and God is his Redeemer. And this testimony of Job has been strengthening for us. It has been strengthening for believers who have read the story and been strengthened by it in the midst of their own troubles, that their troubles aren't quite as bad as Job, and yet they can remain faithful even as Job was. They're, we're strengthened by that faithful testimony over these thousands of years since. 
But in the moment, Job's testimony was also playing out before all of heaven. And all of those principalities and power, all of those rulers and authorities, they were watching it. And it wasn't playing out at all the way that their deceiving, lying ruler had said, claimed that it would. So, Job's moment was one of showing the enemy to be the liar that he was by living out faithfully in the midst of trouble when it cost him something. That's why I said, in those everyday experiences of life, when you give yourself away, when it costs you something, in the everyday stuff of life, you are showing the enemy to be a liar. And you're showing something. You're showing glimpses of God's transforming grace. It's not in the great things. It's in the everyday things. These are our Job moments. And I want you to realize that, that the gospel reaches farther than we realize, and that the gospel reaches, as the gospel is lived out in our lives, it reaches not only people around us in terms of a testimony, but before all of heaven. The choices that you make matter. Every choice is an opportunity to declare God's glory on earth and in heaven to those who have been believing the devil's lies. Every choice matters. How do we live that out? Also in Ephesians chapter 5, be not drunk with wine. Such a false substitute for where real joy comes from. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit is how we will live in this stewardship of victory. That's why I called it that title. That's why I gave chapter 3 a stewardship of victory. Why my standing strong matters. Because all of heaven is watching. You might binge watch Netflix. I don't know what you're, I don't want to know. But if you talk about reality TV, I hope it's not that because reality TV is normally not real, but heaven is watching. Think of it this way. The spiritual realm is watching reality TV and you're on stage. If that's true, what will you show them? What will you tell them? You and I will show them, we will tell them, we will shine God's likeness into that darkness. So think of it. Here we are, back to that image of binge-watching, Netflix streaming. You are in a dark room, and this light is streaming into that room from the TV. It could show all kinds of things. What will my life, what will, my, what will Bob Reality TV show? Oh, that it would show God's likeness into the darkness. Look at verse 14. Ephesians 3 now, verse 14. For this reason, he, he rejoins his prayer from chapter 1. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. All angels as well as all humans originate from the one true God. That according to the rich of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul prays most of all that God would strengthen you. That God would give you strength, internal strength, that you would be filled by his spirit, you would be empowered by his grace for whatever he has called you to do, wherever he has set before you. The result of that being empowered, being filled by the spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But wait a minute, I thought every Christian is indwelt by the spirit. Every Christian has Christ living in us, yes. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, I died with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I still have a life. I still live. And yet the life which I now live in this flesh, this human mortal body, I live 
by faith in the Son of God. I skipped a phrase in there, didn't I? I have been crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live. Yet not I living, but Christ lives in me. And this life I now live, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God. That's what Paul's saying here. That Christ might dwell in your hearts. Christ lives in me. That Christ might live out his life in me. That being rooted and grounded in love, we may be, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that can't be known? How can you know four dimensions in a three-dimensional world? It's beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet you can know it. Let me give you an example. Can you plumb the depths of a bottomless well? You can keep sending that sinker deeper and deeper in it, never reached the bottom, but amazed at how deep this well goes. How far could it be really? Can you count the trees in the national forest? Go ahead and try. It'll, the number changes, you know, with each new rock slide, but go ahead. And yet, I was told, I was told, told by somebody after the, after the service that, that when they lived in Nebraska, the, he, he ran into a guy that worked for the county. He says, what do you do? Well, I count. I count trees. In Nebraska, you can count trees. That, my illustration wouldn't work. But here, could you count the trees in the national forest? If you begin to try, what would happen? Well, you would run out of time. You would run out of numbers before you ran out of trees. But you would be amazed at how many trees there really are, even though you never reach the end of them. Or let's go to Abraham's blessing. Remember, God says to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. So shall the number of people be who believe in Jesus through, through you, who follow you in faith. They'll be like the sand of the seashore. Does that mean if you could actually count the number of grains of sand in the seashore that you would know exactly how many people are going to be saved? That's not the point. Go ahead and start counting, though. And as you count through the day, all, it's a lovely day to be out on the beach. And as you count those grains of sand, one after another, sooner or later, night will fall and you will not be done. You will have hardly made much progress down the beach. And you can be amazed at how many there must be by how many you've already counted, right? Or you turn your attention to the stars in the heaven. Can, can you number those? And you begin to count because now it's nighttime. But as you count the stars in the heaven, you got another problem because the earth keeps rotating slightly, which keeps showing you a few new stars all the time. And not only that, but if you got a stronger telescope, you would even see more than you could see at first, and you're never going to reach the end of those either before the morning breaks again and the blue sky is upon you. The point is, you cannot count them. You cannot number them. You cannot know the beyond your ability to know love of God. But as you step further into it, as you know what can't be known, as you experience more fully what cannot be fully experienced, you will be captured all the more by how deep and far and wide it goes. And the way we get that is by stepping into it. When I step into it, when I give myself away, when, and it's thrown back in my face, when I'm rejected by others because of kindness I've extended toward them, I taste something, just a little bit, of what it was that Jesus, being rejected by humanity and even being separated by his own from his own father because of my sin, and yet he did it willingly for me, for you.
If I experience any rejection, if I experience any hardship, I'm, I'm getting a little taste of what it was, how much Jesus so loved me. And as that grit gives hold of my heart, what does it do? It makes me love like Jesus all the more. It makes me give myself away all the more for the sake of others. So then, Paul's praise that we'd be strengthened by his spirit so that we would live in a relational fellowship with Jesus, knowing experientially God's love for us in Christ, so that being transformed in love, we would show that fullness of God, that likeness of God, God-likeness out of our lives toward others, giving ourselves away for others like Jesus did for us. That's Paul's prayer for the church. And yet it's not merely the impact that might have on people around you. It's the impact that does have not only on earth, but in all of heaven. It's lived out in very practical ways. Chapter 4 and 5 are going to show that out. But it's, it's lived out in ways that are far beyond our ability to fully realize How far does Jesus' love go? Farther than I can go. I can't reach the end of it. How many people would be so blessed by salvation in Christ? More than I could number. More than I could ever count. So I better not count anyone out. There's somebody around you that also counts. There's somebody around you that seems too far away. And yet that's exactly where the gospel goes. And the promise of Ephesians 3 is that God would use you, not because you're ready, but because God is ready. So I want to close asking, or rather us asking, God, would you do that? I don't know just what it looks like. It looks different for each one of us. It's somebody different. It's somewhere different for each one of us. But I want us in this idea of spiritual warfare We can stand because we stand in Christ's authority, not ours. We can stand because the enemy's accusations cannot bring us down because they haven't been answered by God's grace to us in Christ. And yet that same grace that extended toward us is the grace of God that is extending into the darkness through us. On earth, but also in heaven. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. We're going to pray. I said we were going to pray, but I'm like Paul. My prayer just got interrupted. We're going to sing a song in just a minute that, as I understood it, the song was, was composed or, or sung originally or, or very early. Somewhere in the, I may have parts of the details of the story wrong, but it was in a city in Asia, a place where a lot of English-speaking tourists go just to have fun and party. And uh, this Christian band was given permission to play in a club. The club owners didn't know what they were singing. They just knew they were singing in English. And so that would attract these English tourists. And so they were singing gospel songs in the midst of this club in this hedonistic city to all these English-speaking tourists walking by. And in the midst of that, this new song came to them. You are the God of this city. The light of the gospel could even penetrate here. God, do it. Their prayer was, God, do it through us. Our prayer is like that. God, in this city, in this place, around me, send the light of your gospel. Do it through us. Let's pray. Father, would you do that? 
Would you remind us that, yes, you are the God of the city because you're a God of heaven and earth. You're the God over all. There's nothing too, too, too much for you. There is nothing beyond you. There is no power that is not under your authority. There is no place that your gospel cannot go. There is no person who is beyond your saving grace. So, Father, would you use us in this city? Father, would you take our lives? Lord, we're going to receive the offering here in a moment. And we easily just make that one more part of the service. There's one more thing that we do. We, we, we toss in that communication card. We, we, we give our offering for the week or the month. But, Lord, perhaps there's a way today that you would be speaking to our hearts about how you would use me. Father, at this time, we don't simply give into the offering. Lord, we want to give ourselves. We want to pray, Father, use me. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know exactly where that'll be. But Lord, in your grace and by your power, would you use me to shine your light farther than I might think it could go? And I'll trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.